Well, good morning again. If you're tuning in online, welcome. Glad you're able to be with us. And uh, this morning we are going to uh, take uh, briefly um, look at Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 40. We're going to read down to verse uh, 47, and then we'll we'll jump into what the what the Lord has for us this morning. So, if you have your Bibles. Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick up again in verse 40, um, and the words will be up on the screen if you need them, and uh, let's begin reading. It says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so, Lord, would you, Lord, just add your blessing to the reading of your word this morning. And again, Lord, be with us. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit, Lord. And Lord, may we attend our ears, Lord, to what you have for us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you probably know, we have started studying the book of Acts. We've come as far as uh, the first half of chapter 2. And I thought... I thought this morning we'd do something a, a little bit different. And so while we are somewhat in Acts chapter 2 this morning, we're going to do a bunch of jumping around. So we're going to be playing some sword drills this morning. So get ready. Because as we, as we start studying this, this book, right, this book is really about how the church started, right? And, and what they did, right? As, as, as the Lord had been crucified, as the Lord had been resurrected, as he was there with his church, he then departed, right? And, and as, we saw, um, as we saw last week, right? The Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples there. You know, and we're gonna see, we're gonna see Peter and we're gonna see Paul, right? Going out and planting churches. And so what I thought was, What's important this morning is to maybe look at what the church is and what church means. After all, in verse 47 there in Acts chapter 2, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord is adding to the church. You'll notice there it's, it's the church. In the Greek, the definite article. It's not a church, it's right? It's, it's the church. We might say the capital C, church. Right? This is our, our Greek word, ecclesia. 
It's used 115 times in the New Testament. It's where we get our English, English word, church. It's a compound word in the Greek. It's the Greek preposition ek, E-K, right? Ek, which stands for out of, right? So if you think of like Greek prepositions, right? You draw a circle, right? And those prepositions basically describe their relationship to that circle, right? So if you have the circle, you draw a line going out of the circle. And that's our preposition, out of or from, away from. And then we have the Greek word uh, kaleo, which means to call or to invite. So the word ecclesia literally means called out ones. The called out ones. It's the, the idea is an assembly, right? You are called out from one place to assemble in another. In fact, most of the time, if you if you were to, to read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? anytime that word ecclesia is used in the Old Testament, it's assembly, right? It's to assemble, right? That's what we're doing here this morning, is it not? We are assembling for a purpose. And that's what this Greek word means. It's a gathering of called out ones and assembly. And this assembly, right, this assembly could mean a home, Right in in Romans sixteen um, five, right it, it uses this word in reference to people meeting in homes. In First Thess- Thessalonians one one, the same word is used to describe a church in a city. In Acts nine thirty one, it's a larger area, right, describing um, a region. And like the, the churches in that region in Acts 9, uh, 31, and an even larger area in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. It's the whole area of, of Asia. Right, so we have this kind of idea, right? This idea that the church of God is both visible and invisible, right? It's, it's visible in the sense that people are gathering together, they're assembling, right? They've been called out for the purpose of assembling together, right, to worship God. That's what we're doing here this morning, is it not? We've assembled together as the church to worship God, to be with him in his house. But there's also the sense in which it's invisible, right? Because we're here, we've gathered here together as the church, but certainly we don't constitute the entirety of the church, right? We are not the only believers At least I certainly hope not. (laughs) Although sometimes it might feel that way, right? Well, but the truth is that there is a sense in which the church is visible and invisible. It's visible in that we are here and we are a visible representation of what the church should look like. But there's obviously a much larger version of the church, right? Which, again, the church, we might say capital C, which would constitute everyone who is called by the name of the Lord. Right? Those that truly belong to him. So the, the visible is that local expression of believers that's been called out, right, to assemble together, right? Again, what we're doing this morning. And the invisible is those that really only God knows, right? God knows the heart. God knows who are truly his and who belong to him, right? In other words, just because you go to church, doesn't make you a Christian, right? Any more than standing in a garage makes you a car, right? But it also means that, um, 
It also means that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. It's important that we go to church. It's important that we gather together and be with one another. But that isn't what makes us a Christian. So I think, you know, as we, as we jump into this, is that there's a, a large and important need today to know and understand what the church is and what its nature is. You know, and this is something that obviously, right, that must be determined first by what the scripture teaches us, right? Not just what society says the church should be, right? Not just what society says the role of the church is or how it should affect the world today, right? We cannot define the church simply by the way the church interacts with the world, right? Because the world is ever-changing, right? It's always moving. It's always adapting, right? We live in an ever-changing world. And if there's something that needs to be constant, I think it needs to be the church because the church is founded in this book, right? The church is founded on the principles of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and so we can't, we can't let an ever-changing world tell us who we should be or how we should act, right? That is something that's determined by Scripture. So as always, we must begin with the Word of God. So we can get a sense of what the church is. And then from there, from there, we can decide how we involve ourselves in the world, how we engage with the world around us. So I'd like to do something, again, a little bit different this morning, and that's to kind of jump around a little bit. I want to look at seven, seven different metaphors that the Scripture uses to describe the church. Seven metaphors that Scripture uses regarding the church. So, yep, you guessed it. If you're taking notes this morning, we have seven points that we want to look at, seven Things this morning that describe the church. And the first, the first thing we want to consider, the first thing we want to look at, the first metaphor that Scripture uses for the church is the phrase, the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. And this describes who we are collectively, right? What the church, capital C, looks like collectively, the body of Christ. So if you're ready, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we get this phrase, the body of Christ. So if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 12, where it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is there therefore not of the body? 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if there be one, I'm sorry, if there be all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So what Paul here is doing is he is describing the church. He is describing how the church should look. And he's saying the church is like a body, right? A body with many different members, but all collectively part of the same, right? The church being a singular unit, right? A body is unity with a diversity of functions, right? And that's kind of what Paul is drawing out from this passage, Right, The hands have specific purposes, and the purposes that hands have are different than the purposes that, say, our eyes have or our ears have, right? But yet, it's still part of the body. Even though our hands do something different than our eyes do, it's still part of the same body. And what Paul is doing is saying that as the church, we are the body of Christ, right? We are a body that we work together, right? We may look different. We may have different functions, different callings, different giftings, but we're all part of the same body. Right? A diversity of functions. And, and, and what's, what Paul is telling us here right, is that we're a singular unit, right? we're a body that's in unity, right? has a diversity of functions. And this isn't some goal to be achieved. No, Paul's saying it's a fact to be recognized, right? This isn't something like, all right, let's try and work together. Let's try and be collective on this. Paul's saying, no, we are a collective. We are together. We are the body of Christ. And we don't get to say, well, I don't think you're that effective, so you're not really part of us. We don't get to say that, right? That's not our place. Again, going back to the idea that the church is visible and invisible, we can only see those visible parts, and we have to make determinations based on what we can, can see and understand. But God knows, right, the invisible part of the church. God knows who are his, who belong to him. We are the body of Christ. Right there, as Paul mentions there, right, there are, you know, many necessary members of our bodies, right? Of our physical bodies, there are necessary members that 
are kind of incapable of, of self-defense, right? Right, the, the more delicate portions of our, our bodily structure, whether internal or external, when compared with the more obvious and more, I guess, active and energetic members of our body, right, sometimes there, there seems to be some parts that are more valuable or more important than other parts. You know, and as Paul is talking to, to the church there in Corinth, there seems to be some sort of schism that had happened, right? Where some people felt themselves to be more important. Or perhaps they felt other people were not as important or not as effective for the purposes of God's kingdom. And Paul's saying, no, this isn't it. We are all a singular unit. We are his church. It's not just the active or the energetic parts. It's all of us, collectively. And that's why I like this, this idea that the church, right, it's the body of Christ, and it describes who we are collectively. Right? Because if we stand by ourselves, what are we? Right? It's, it's not just me. It's not just you. It's not just one singular person doing the work of God's kingdom. It should be all of us working together. It should be all of us we have to remember that there is always an order, right? There's always a structure that the Lord has put in place, right? So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul kind of expands on this idea, talking to the church there in Ephesus, where Paul says in verses 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet. And he gave him, that being Jesus, he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right, so Paul takes this idea that he's telling the Corinthian church, right, that we are the body of Christ and the hand can't tell the eye that there's no need for you. And he says, but there is a structure, there is an order of things. Christ is the head. Right, so, so we work together. We are collectively the church. We are the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head, right? He stands at the top, right? He's the one that we are following after. He is the one that leads us, right? He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, Right, and this is what I find interesting and fascinating about this idea is that angels or archangels, right, they're subject to Jesus. Right? They're they're subject to him and what he says. But what Paul is telling us is that we as believers we're joined to him. We're part of his body. He's the head, but we're part of his body. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are eyes, but we're all part of his body and he stands at the head. And all things are are put under his feet. We're his hands and his feet, right? We're his eyes and his ears. But we're joined to him. We're joined to him. And the point that Paul, I think, is trying to make here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that Paul puts the question in the mouth of the one who feels excluded from the body. You ever felt excluded before? 
Ever felt like you're on the outside or like you don't quite belong? You're not really being included? Maybe people look down? I think that's true. I think sometimes Christians today can can feel like they maybe they don't belong or maybe you know I don't I don't have that certain spiritual gift. I don't have that really active and 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 visual gift, right? So I guess I'm not really part of the body of Christ. I mean, after all, the the hands and and the and the, the the hands and the eyes seem, seem way more important. They seem way more glamorous than maybe the feet that c- covered up all the time. Or the ears that seem to have less of an influence. So, Paul wants these, these Christians, Paul wants these believers who feel excluded to know that they are indeed members of the body of Christ. They are indeed members of the church. And if they think they're excluded, he's in a sense saying that they're just as foolish as the foot saying to the ear that I have no part of you. You know, I think the opposite is also true, right? Because while, while some of us sometimes may feel excluded, while some of us may feel like we're not really part of the body, or we're not really effective, and so therefore we're not, you know, we don't have that visual or that that exciting ministry or, or whatever, however we, we want to qualify that. The fact of the matter is, is if the, that if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we are part of his church, we are part of his body, and we have a role to fill in that. He has gifted us in a certain way, and so the opposite also must be true. The same principle can be stated towards those who feel the need to exclude others. And I hope, right, that that's not us. Right, that we're not looking at people going, well, you're not needed. You're not that important. Paul could have just as well said, the hand cannot say to the foot that it's not of the body because it's not a hand. Right? Paul wants Christians who might exclude others simply because they don't appreciate their place in the body to recognize the simple fact of unity. That we are collective. We are together. We are one body. We serve one Lord for the furtherance of his kingdom. I mean, that's the purpose. That's why we come together. It's to, it's to worship one God, right? Because we are one body. And there is one purpose, and it's his kingdom. So we are a body. But not just that. The second thing that I want to consider this morning, the second metaphor that's used for the church is that of the family of God. The church is referred to as the family of God. And this family describes our heritage, right? I mean, think about it, right? We all come from a family, and the family that we come from describes our heritage, where we came from, how we got here. You know, and often, you know, so many of us, we're, we're proud of our heritage. We're proud of where we came from and who we are. We're the family of God. Second Corinthians 
chapter 6, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 18 says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We're part of his family. We are his sons and daughters. He is our father. You know, uh, Watchman Nee tells about a, a new convert who came, in, um, who came in deep distress to see him. He says, No matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. He says, I think I'm losing my salvation. So Watchman Nee said, do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He's house trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He is a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. And he asks the question, who do you think is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. He says, my son. My son is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir. Because it's for you that he died. We are all Christ's heirs, not through our perfection, but by means of his grace. We are the family of God. We are his sons and daughters. He is our father because of the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined us to adoption. It was always his plan that we become his sons and daughters through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. It says, says, it was his good pleasure, right? His will that we become his sons and daughters, that he be our father. And I can tell you, when an adoption is complete, it's complete, right? When you adopt someone, that person who's been adopted, and if you know us and if you know our story, for us, that's Judah. We adopted him. And when you adopt someone, all the rights of a legitimate son, right, in his new family, Right? Those birth parents go and they surrender their rights. And he becomes our son. He has all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. And he has completely lost all the rights to his old family. In the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the law, he became a completely new person. Right? He took on the name we gave him. He took on our family name. My heritage. Right? As far as the law is concerned, he is 100% my son. 
And that's what I love about this picture because when we call in the name of Jesus, when he becomes our Lord, we are 100% sons and daughters of God. We belong to him. Right? And we lose all rights to our old life. It's gone. It's done away with. It's paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are his family. And that's what it means to be the church. We're his. We belong to him. We've been paid for. So our position in the family of God gives us something in Jesus that Adam never had. Right? When, when people want to ask us the speculative question of why God went ahead with the creation when he knew that we would fall short, why did God create Adam and Eve knowing they would fall in the garden? Why did he put the tree in there if he knew they would eat of it? And the one answer that we can give is that we were destined for higher dignity than creation itself bestows on us. We were meant for more. But the only way that gets fulfilled is through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Our heritage. Our heritage is in the family of God. We are his sons and his daughters, which means we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? We're of the same family. We are, and that's why it's, we are a church family. That's why we call it that. We're a family because we have the same father. We've all been purchased by the same blood. We belong to him. Well, not only are we the body of Christ, not only are we the family of God as a church, we are also described as vine and branches, right? There's this this idea that there's the vine and the branches in in John 15. And, And this metaphor for the church describes our intimate and our dependent relationship to Jesus. Right, for us to be the church, there is a dependence and an intimacy that we need to have with our Lord and Savior for us to be members of the church. John 15, if you want to turn there, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. 
As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus there describes and uses this metaphor for the church, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, right? My father in heaven owns the vine. He is the vine dresser. It's his vineyard, and I'm the vine. You're the branches, right? And what this tells us and what this teaches us, right? The branch cannot exist apart from the vine, right? If you separate the branch, what's going to happen? Nothing, no growth, no fruit, no nothing. It's going to wither and it's going to die. And he says, it's no good other than firewood. You must be attached to the vine. And Jesus says, I am the vine. So there's our relationship. There's our dependence. We are dependent upon Jesus. If we're not attached to Jesus, if we're not a part of him, then we're not a part of the church. We're the branches We cannot exist apart from the vine. We cannot exist apart from Jesus. Out of the many pictures of the relationship between God and his people, the vine and the brancher, the vine and the branches, this picture emphasizes our complete and utter dependence, right? Our constant need for connection. We need. That's why we say that to be a believer, it's about relationship, right? We need to have a relationship with Jesus. We must be connected to the vine. The branch depends on the vine even more than the sheep depends on the shepherd, more than the child depends on the father, because the branch cannot exist and can do nothing if it's separate from the vine. So this concept of, of abiding, it's, it's not just restrictive to our abiding in Jesus, right? It also says that he abides in us, right? It includes his, it says I and I in him. You abide in me and I in him. He abides in us. It's a mutual dynamic that expects our life to be spiritually and practically in vital connection to Jesus. We have to be connected to him. He must be connected to us. And I find this amazing, right? Since God has put his work into our weak and feeble hands, right? We're just, we're a weak branch. We do nothing apart from the vine. No fruit can come. No fruit can come apart from the vine. So we must feel the full weight of our calling. We are weak men and women completely dependent on a strong and a powerful God. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Part of recognizing the role and the nature of the church is realizing that there needs to be an intimate dependence on the vine, an intimate dependence on Jesus Christ. We need that. Otherwise, we're not the church. It begs the question, what are we doing? If we're not connected to the vine, if we're not connected to Jesus, what are we doing? 
What is the point? What fruit can we possibly bear apart from him? So we are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We are the branches to his vine. But Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Paul, Paul tells us that we are also the pillar and ground of truth. We are the pillar and ground of truth in 1 Timothy 14 and 15. This describes how we relate to the world. Right, So we're the body of Christ, and that describes us collectively. Right, We are the family of God, which describes our heritage. We are the branches to his vine, which describes our dependence upon him. And we are the pillar and ground of truth. This is describing how we relate to the world. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 read, These things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So as I already mentioned, in in the ancient Greek language, church, it was actually, before it became commonplace to refer to the church, it was actually a, a non-religious word, right? That was just referencing a group of people that were called out and called together for a specific purpose. So again, when you read like the Septuagint, which is again the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? It would use that word, ecclesia, to describe an assembly to go out to war or an assembly for political reasons, right? They were called out and assembled for a purpose, And that term got reworked to describe the church. Why? Because we've been called out for a purpose, right? And that's to worship him. That's to proclaim him. So the living God has called his people together for a purpose. And one of those purposes, right, is is to, to relate to this world, right? To be what? A pillar and a ground of truth, right? In, in a world where, tr- where they say truth is relative, right? We have the truth. We have it. It's in this book. Pillars, right? Pillars are, and, and foundations, what do they do, right? If you think of a pillar or, a, or the ground, right? It's a, it holds up a structure, does it not? So, It isn't that the church is the foundation of truth, but that the church holds up the truth. We're the pillar that holds up the truth, the structure of God's word and says, this is what it is. If you want to know what truth is, it's right here. Look no further than this book, right? So the world can see it. So, When the church stand boldly, stands boldly out and preaches the word, preaches truth, speaks truth, it's the pillar, it's the ground of truth. Now, and this is the amazing thing, right? When, when God's word 
is, is hidden in Roman catacombs and it can't be proclaimed. There are still the lives, right, of the church. The truth lives in us. Spurgeon said, there still lives the truth deep in the hearts of believers, and they are the ground of truth. Because the church is not a building, right? I mean, we, we come here and we gather in this building, right? But this place, is, this place were to catch on fire this week and burn to the ground, does that mean the church is gone? Well, Lighthouse doesn't exist anymore. Sorry. Find a new church. No. Because we're the church, right? It's us. What makes this building significant is that God's people are meeting in it and fellowshipping in it and worshiping him in it. It's not the building. It's us. We're proclaiming his truth, holding up his truth. We're pillars in the community, right, saying this is truth. You know, there's a, there's a, a book out there in the bookstore um, called Sh- Sharing Jesus Without Fear. And one of the things in this book that have always, has always been so profound to me is that it says that we are to be witnessing at all times. We are to be always sharing Jesus. And he says, when necessary, use words, right? Because so often we think that it's, I need to go out and do street evangelism, right? I need to be witnessing, and the only witness I can have comes out of my mouth. And that's not true, Right? Who we are, how we interact with the community, how we interact with those around us, right, is a witness. It's not just the things we say, it's the things we do. It's how we respond to certain situations. You know, at at work, everybody in my workplace knows that I'm a pastor. Because my company, we're, we're open on Sundays, and when I was getting ready to take the job, they told me, like, you're going to have to work Sundays. And I said, I can't do that. And I said, well, why not? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm at church on Sundays. And they said, well, if you can get that in writing, then we'll, we can make that Sunday thing disappear for you. Which I praise the Lord for. But what's amazing to me is that what that did was it told everybody in my company that I'm a pastor. That's why I'm not there on Sundays. Everybody else is but me. And that alone stands as a witness. And now they're watching me on how I respond to situations. The things I'm saying, the things I'm doing. My integrity in the workplace is going to be judged based off of the fact that, oh, I'm a pastor. But the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't matter if I was a pastor or not. The fact that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I should, it should look different than the world, right? How we respond to situations should be different because we have the truth and then we hold it up as a pillar and say, this is truth. This is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell. Do his words dwell within you? Someone else once said that we might be the only Bible someone reads, right? Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, the church has God's word, right? We have his word, his inspired word. It is profitable. It's profitable. It should dwell richly in us. It's living, it's active, right? And it's able to, to reach the deepest recesses of our hearts, right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been reading God's word and it just, man, it just hits harder than it usually does sometimes, right? It reveals that thing that you've been burying. Nobody needs to know about this. And you bury it and you bury it and you bury it and you read God's word and boom. I mean, it's right there in your face because it's living and it's active, We have the truth. Well, another thing, another metaphor of the church, right? We're not just a a pillar in the ground of truth, right? But we're described, the church is described as the temple of God, right? The building and the temple of God. And this describes God's residence, it describes where God resides. Because again, God is here because his people are here, right? If we all get up and we walk out into the parking lot, where's God? He's with us, right? Because he resides within us. You know, so often when I I talk with with some of my unbelieving friends and I invite them that you're, oh, I can't go in that place, I'll be struck by lightning, right? Because, Because somehow God is in this place. Right? It's the building that's important, right? If I go in there, God's in there, and I'm, he's going to strike me down. No. Right? God dwells in us. We are his temple. 1 Corinthians, 3, 9 through, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 9 through 11. 3, chapter 3, verse 9. <laughs> For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you jump down to verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Spirit of God dwells in us. So when we invite the Holy Spirit in this place, it's because we are here and he resides in us. 
We are his residence. So when Paul calls the church a temple, he's not, he's not using a word picture here. Right? The physical temple was the picture. Right? When they were there in, 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 in Jerusalem, the physical temp- temple was a picture of where God resides. That was the picture because he resides in us. God dwells within us. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. He dwells in us. We are his temple. And I love that. We're not our own, he says, right? We've been bought with a price. The highest price, right? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son. So if our bodies belong to Jesus, right? If we are not our own, we have been bought with a price. We also have no right to be idle with it, Spurgeon says. We have no right to be idle or wasteful. What belongs to him, our body should be put to use glorifying God. Right? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Spurgeon says, your body was a willing horse when it was in the service of the devil. Let it not be sluggish now that it draws the chariot of Christ. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord and in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in his spirit. This is describing the church. It's describing who we are. We belong to him. And I love, notice what it says there, right? In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. Right, there's an essence there in which we should be growing. We should be moving forward, moving closer to him. This tells us that the church is a dwelling place, a place where God lives. It's never to be an empty house. It's not to be a museum, right, with no one living inside it. No, it's the temple of God. In other words, we don't come to this building because it's where God dwells. This just happens to be the place where God's people come together. Therefore, we believe God is here because his people are here. He dwells in his people. He dwells in us. This is why, this is why Hebrews chapter 10 is so important for us. Right? What does Hebrews chapter 10 tell us? Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest By the blood of Jesus. 
by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The author to the Hebrews said that it's important that we get together. It's important that the body of Christ be a collective, that we come together, we worship together as a unit. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another, and so much more, he says, as you see the day approaching, right? He says, as you look out on the landscape and you see the Lord's coming, we need to be together. We need to be united. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, he says. He says, we need to have boldness to enter the holiest by his blood, right? By this new and this living way which he consecrated for us through the veil which is his flesh. Boldness to assemble, to be the church. Literally, to be called out together. Together. Well, we have to hurry. Not only... Are we the temple of God? But we're also, he says, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. The church is described in a metaphor as a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. Aren't those terms that were used to describe the nation of Israel, aren't they the holy nation? Aren't they the royal priesthood? Well, First Peter tells us, In chapter 2, verses 5 and verse 9, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what Peter is doing is Peter is taking, right, these titles that were given to the nation of Israel, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and he is applying them now to the church. And say, no, it is not just Israel. It is not just the Jews. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. He says God does the work of building, right? He's being built. But who does the job of offering sacrifices pleasing to him? Right? So if you go back and you read the Old Testament and you consider what was going on there in the temple, right? Who was... Who was offering the sacrifices, right? It was the temple priests, right? You would go and you would bring your sacrifice and the priest would then go administer that gift. They would perform the sacrifice or the offering. And what Peter here is saying is, I'm now going to take this image and apply it to the church. 
says, no, you're a royal priesthood. You offer sacrifices unto the Lord. He says that we're living stones made by him. And even a living stone cannot build something great for God as it sits all on its own. What God does in us together is important because he's building something out of us together. Right? We come collectively as the body of Christ. We come to this place to worship him, to offer our sacrifices of praise. Right? This isn't something we do by ourselves. Not that we can't do it by ourselves. We certainly can, and I hope in our private time we are. But it's also something that we do together. These titles that were once exclusive to, to Israel are now, right, being applied to the church. We are a chosen generation, right, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people, right? These are all things that are now being, as Peter says, it's now being applied to every believer who is in Jesus Christ. So the church collectively is a holy nation. It's a royal priesthood, which should result which should result in the proclaiming of his praises. Right? We should be praising him. The purpose, right, the purpose of these high privileges that we now have as a special people, as a chosen generation, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, right? these high privileges aren't something that we should use to, to grow proud but so that we can proclaim the praises of him who has done such amazing things in us and for us. Well, the last metaphor that I want to look at this morning is is not just, you know, that we are this royal nation, or this holy nation and this royal priesthood, right? And, And if I didn't mention, that is describing our service and our relationship to the Lord, right? How do we serve the Lord? Not just how do we look and how do we respond to the community, but how do we serve the Lord, right? And that's proclaiming his praises, worshiping him, offering a sacrifice of praise to him. But the last thing that I want to consider this morning is how Jesus describes us. How does Jesus describe the church? He describes the church in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, He says, you are the salt of the earth. And he says, you are the light of the world. Jesus describes us, the church, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, in verse 13. He says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? Then he says, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light, excuse me, it gives light to all those who are in the house. So how should the church look? How should Jesus be describing us? Hopefully, right, by the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The church is like salt because the church, or salt has a preserving 
preserving influence, right? Salt is used to preserve things, especially in the ancient world. That's how things were preserved, was using salt. And isn't that so true? The church should have a preserving influence on the world today. Right? Because when we look out, man, it just seems like the world is going to hell, does it not? It's just getting worse and worse and worse, and it begs the question, where's the church? And more importantly, where is the influence of the church? Where are we? We should be having a preserving influence on our culture. The church is like salt, not only because it preserves, but also because salt adds flavor, right? Why do we put salt on our food? Most of the time for us, it's, not, it's less for about preserving it, but more about because we want to add the flavor to what we're eating. We should be a flavorful people, right? <laughs> Disciples, if they are true to their calling, make the earth purer and more palatable. More palatable. Right? When the secular world looks out on the landscape, hopefully they're saying, well, it's a good thing the church is here. Because the church makes it more palatable. And the church is having a preserving influence. So Jesus here gives the, church, the, the Christian both a great compliment and a great responsibility. Right? When he says that we are the light of the world, when he says that we are the salt of the earth, he's complimenting his people, but he's also challenging his people. Because he is also applying a title that belongs to him, he's now applying that to the church. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Then he looks at his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. Why? Because he dwells in us, right? Because we are attached to the vine. If we're attached to the vine, the light that he gives, we can now give. Not because we're something special, but because he dwells in us. He resides in us because we're attached to him. Jesus never challenged us to become salt and light. He simply said that we are salt and light. We are salt and light. So we are either fulfilling that or we're failing in the responsibility that he has given us. The key thought in both of these pictures, salt and light, is distinction. Right? Salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying, and it needs to be preserved. Right? The things of the Lord need to be preserved. Light is needed... Because the world is in darkness, right? That's the distinction, right? Salt is needed because something is rotting and decaying. Light is needed because there is darkness. 
And we are the salt and we are the light. We are what preserves. We are what shines a light in the darkness. To be effective, we must seek and display that Christian distinctive. We can never affect the world for Jesus by becoming like the world. We are supposed to stand apart. We are supposed to be distinctive of the world. And so as I close, I want to read you this, this article that I came across last night. I found it very intriguing, especially in light of being the salt of the earth, in light of being the light of the world. This article was published on May 19th, 2020, right? So less than two years ago. The historian Tom Holland is known primarily as a storyteller of the ancient world. Thus, his newest book, which is titled uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, came as something of a surprise for several reasons. First, Tom Holland is not a Christian. And second, Holland's book is one of the most ambitious historical defenses of Christianity in a very long time. While studying the ancient world, Holland writes that he realized something. And if, if you do any research on this, this guy, Tom Holland, he had a, a, an incredible passion for the ancient world, in particular um, nations of, of prominence. So he, he was fascinated by the Egyptian empire, by the Babylonians, by the Grecians and the Romans, was just infatuated with how they dominated the world. And, and he realized something, simply that the ancients were cruel, their values utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for physical pleasure to those with power. Infant side was something common. The poor and the weak had no rights, he says. So how did we get from there to here? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It's ironic, Colin notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christianity is derided. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. In fact, Holland points out that without Christianity, the Western world, the Western world would not exist. Even the claims of the social justice warriors who despise the faith of their ancestors rest on the foundation of Judo-Christian values. Those who make arguments based on love, tolerance, and compassion are borrowing fundamentally Christian arguments. And if the West had not become Christian, Holland writes, no one would have gotten woke. Holland's book-length defense on the belief system the elites love to despise has unsurpassingly attracted some criticism. He faced off with militant atheist and prominent philosopher A.C. Grayling on the question, did Christianity give us our human values? And Grayling struggled to rebuke Holland, sounding more petty than philosophical. Holland, on the other hand, became positively passionate in his defense of Christianity. If Western civilization is the fishbowl, he stated, then the water is Christianity. In fact, 
the very critiques of those who condemn Christianity for various perceived injustices are rooted in Christian precepts. Holland's passionate defense of Christianity is fascinating because it appears to be part of a trend. As the West becomes definitively post-Christian, many secularists are suddenly realizing that Christianity may have been more valuable than they thought. While many, including Holland, cannot quite bring themselves to believe Christianity is true, they are starting to believe that Christianity might be necessary. Douglas Murray, the conservative author and columnist, is also an atheist. In recent years, however, he has started to warn that the decline of Christianity is a dangerous thing. Society now faces three options. First, Murray says, is to reject the idea that all human life is precious. Another is to work furiously to nail down an atheist version of the sanctity of an individual. And if that doesn't work, then there is only one other place to go, which is back to faith, whether we like it or not. Murray now occasionally refers to himself as a Christian atheist. (laughs) Speaking with Esther O'Reilly on the Unbelievable podcast, Murray laughed the revolutionary moral insights of Christianity. I'm sorry. She, uh, She lauded the revolutionary moral insights of Christianity. He told her that while visiting the Sea of Galilee, he couldn't shake the feeling that something happened here. And he admitted that as atheists consider morality, the more we may have to accept that the sanctity of human life is a Judeo-Christian notion, which might very easily not survive the disappearance of Judeo-Christian civilization. Speaking on the Darren's Grimes show last month, he was even blunter. He says, There seems to be little point to me in a life spent talking about Labor Party politics rather than God. The phenomenon of atheists praising Christianity appears to be growing. Gone are the days when Christopher Hitchens, a good friend of Murray's, and his fellow secularists raged against the poison of religion. Even Richard Dawkins has now admitted that Christianity might be preferable to the alternatives. He once called for Christianity to be destroyed. Now he is begrudgingly says it has good effects on society. And then there is also Jordan Peterson. The famous psychologist refuses to say whether he believes in God, or at least he refuses to say what he means by God or Christ or faith. Peterson is attempting to synthesize scripture with Jung and Darwin, and the result is predictably tortured. But Peterson knows that without Christianity, unspeakable cruelty is inevitable. He speaks like a secular Calvinist. He believes in human depravity, but has not yet worked out redemption. So Charles Murray, the American social scientist and sociologist, is an agnostic, yet He told me in an interview that he believes the American Republic will not survive without a resurgence of Christianity. You cannot have a free society with a constitution like the American one unless you are trying to govern a religious people, he observed. The late Sir Roger Scruton, too, headed back to church. He struggled with many of Christianity's truth claims, but still, he came to believe that Christianity was necessary. And while nursing doubts, he played the organ 
in his local Anglican church during Sunday services. Perhaps practice, he once said, would help him along. He wasn't sure he could believe it all, but he wanted to. These men are King Agrippa Christians. As King Agrippa told Apostle Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. They almost believed it. They believe Christianity is good. Some believe it is necessary. As Murray put it, he believes, he believes in belief. But they cannot yet bring themselves to believe that it is literally true, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. So these strange struggles also deliver a warning to the West. Without Christianity, we are heading into a thick and impenetrable darkness. Christianity gave us human rights. It gave us protection for the weak, compassion rooted in commands to love, forgiveness for enemies. It revolutionized the world. We are now in the process of undoing that revolution. In fact, we are replacing it with sexual revolution. We should look at what we are destroying before we carry on. We should ask why fences were built before tearing them down. We should listen to the atheists nervously telling us that Christianity is necessary. And we should fight to ensure that our post-Christian culture is once again a pre-Christian one. Now, I read that because this, this struck me last night as I was thinking about this. Right? One is that this article is telling us that, that the church has lost its influence on the world. Right? The article is telling us that we are now a post-Christian society. Which begs the question, what happened to the church? Where did we go? Where's our influence? Where's our saltiness? Where's our light? But it also struck me that there are atheists who were once so antagonistic and so against our faith and our beliefs that they are now coming to a place that says, where did it go and how do we get it back? Even if they're not ready to believe in Jesus, they want the, more, they want the influence that the Christian church brought to the world. Right? As this guy spent all this time researching ancient civilizations, realizing that they are nothing but cruel and hateful towards people. He's realizing that whether we like it or not, the world we live in that makes it worth living in is Judeo-Christian principles. And that is because of the influence that the church once had on the world. And I ask the question again, where did we go? What happened to us? Where did our influence go? And why is it atheists that are calling us to come back? Why is it taking an atheist to say, where'd you guys go and how do we get you back? So I apologize for running long this morning, but I felt it was important. And it was interesting, I was just, I, I just, I, I saw a Facebook post with a quote from this guy. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I started doing some research and I came across this article and I was like, wow. Where's the church? What happened? You know, and the amazing thing is as we're going through the book of Acts, right? And that's why I wanted to, to read that passage, right? Because the Lord was growing the church, right? He added 3,000 people to the church and it was growing daily. The Lord was adding to the church. Which begs the question, where is the Lord in our lives? Are we attached to the vine? 
so that we can bear fruit for him. So that we can once again have the positive influence on the world that we should have. That preserving influence, being the salt and being the light. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you this morning for your word, Lord. And, Lord, as we consider this morning the importance of your church, Lord, what it means for us to be your church, to be your influence in the world, what it means to to gather together and proclaim who you are, to worship you for what you've done in our lives. God, we express this morning how much we need you. Lord, that we cannot keep trying to do this on our own. God, that we have no influence in and of ourselves if we're apart from you. So God, I pray this morning you would bring us back. Lord, you would draw us to a place where we are wholly and completely dependent upon you. Lord, that we'd be attached to the vine, Lord, not because you're holding on to us, but Lord, also because we are holding so tightly onto you, afraid to let go. Lord, we need you. So we ask you this morning, Lord, fill our lives, be a part of us this morning, God, and show us how we can be a salt and a light to this world. We thank you, we praise you this morning, God. We pray these things in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen.